Israel is spoken of many times as the people of God. History has borne out the truth of this. So when we ask the question, why all this interest today in Israel, we see that the Bible speaks on this subject. And it is our purpose today to find out some of the things that are related to it. As a democratic state today, Israel is a recognized world power. She holds some interest to other nations, whether that be commercial or military or political or just what. Other nations have some interest in Israel, this country, for instance. Each day, the headlines of our papers have something to say about Israel, pro or con. Providence enters into the picture when we consider what God has said in the past regarding this people and their future. <clears throat> Israel is being threatened today by the Arab nations, particularly her neighbor Egypt. General Nasser has never, we might say, had a kind word to say toward these people. He has shown no friendly spirit. Uh, of course, this means nothing to us politically, but we are just observing this as some of the landmarks as we go along. The Suez Canal, uh, we're all aware of the uh, position that Egypt holds in relation to that canal and that they will not allow the state of Israel to put ships through that canal for the purpose of her commercial interest. The Gulf of Aqaba, which is uh, on the uh, other side of the canal, I'm sorry this map is not perhaps visible to all, it's the best I could do uh, on the time. But if you will see the, uh, the isthmus of Sinai, or the Sinai Peninsula here, and in this Red Sea, at this end coming into the Mediterranean Sea, of course we have our Suez Canal, and the Gulf of Aqaba on this other side of this peninsula is still another sore spot in that Egypt will not allow peacefully Israel to transport her commercial interest into this port or city of Aqaba at this end of the uh, water. The width of this uh, Gulf of Aqaba I think is 18 miles, perhaps at its widest point. And international waterways require the code of the uh, nations is that it requires a 12-mile limit before it can be declared as uh, international. And whereas the center point of that canal would only be nine miles of that, uh, excuse me, of that uh, gulf would only be nine miles out, Egypt makes her claim that Israel has no right, of course, to come into that uh, 
place and use it on the grounds of it being an international waterway. Israel is hated by its Arab neighbors. This has been true since 1800 or 2000 years before Christ. A constant hatred has existed. History will bear us out in that statement. We have about two million people in the state of Israel, whereas its hostile Arab na uh, neighbors have about 40 million. One fact I would like for all of us to uh, realize, I think perhaps it's one that is overlooked from time to time, and people trying to understand from a, an unbiased viewpoint the things concerning this nation, is that the past history of Israel is true. Many people say, well, of course, we, we accept the Bible for what it teaches, what it uh, what it's worth, uh, and yet I think the uh, nation of Israel is not given its prop proper perspective. The children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt long ago. They were delivered from bondage by Moses, by the hand of God. They journeyed in the wilderness. They came into the land of Canaan and inherited it and existed as a nation and as a kingdom for hundreds of years. And then in the year about 600 before Christ, their kingdom was overturned. They had no more kings or had no more kingdom since that time. So we must recognize that the past history of Israel is a fact. They existed just as much as English kings or French or German or Russian or European or Asiatic kings and histories that we read about and accept as a routine matter of fact. In fact, we are inclined to feel that people today will believe a fictitious tale such as the cherry tree, which George Washington supposedly cut down and actually never did, than would they believe the history of Israel. But these things happen. If they did not, God is a liar. So to separate Israel from God, or vice versa, is in fact to disbelieve the Bible. We realize that people like to dismiss, I think, the Jews from their thinking today, nationally and politically and perhaps religiously, because of certain prejudices, because of what an Israelite may be. I think we're inclined, if we see one Israelite or Jew who is not morally up to standard, we're inclined to think that the majority are that way. True, that may be, but we must look at this people that God has spoken about from the standpoint of what the scriptures have to say about it. You'll go with me to the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 8, 9, and 10. We'll read what God has said about this people. When the Most High divided to the nations their, inherited, their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. 
For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. This is merely one of the descriptive phrases regarding Israel, which we will make mention of. They are spoken of as the apple of God's eye. God told us through the pages of his word that he chose Israel. He selected them to be a peculiar people unto himself. He selected them out of all other nations. Also, we would like to read from the uh, second chapter of Zechariah, a small portion of that chapter relative to God's thinking or his ways regarding this people. Zechariah 2, 7 to 13. Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants, and ye, sh ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the Holy Land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. Here we see the forecast of God through his prophets of old that a nation will inherit the Holy Land, which we recognize to be this strip of territory, particularly covered by Israel today, but I think the geography changes from time to time, and Jordan is in possession of some of that uh, area today. We could make copious reference to the figures of Israelite history, history uh, which do not particularly bear upon the subject that we intend to carry out today. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, Christ, and the apostles are all Jewish figures carrying out their particular part in God's program of developing his people, Israel. Has God forgotten these promises? We can read the book of Isaiah and it is full, chapter after chapter, of prophecies of the future, things that are spoken that will happen to Israel, written thousands of years ago. Has God forgotten these promises? Are they still binding? What do we actually think is their effect upon his truth today? You know, man will believe that God can create the earth, continents, great continents, seas, mountains, life itself, and yet he's reluctant to recognize the ability of God to shape the policy 
are affairs of a nation. We must not lose sight of God's plan to visit the nations and to arrange them, no matter how militarily powerful they may seem to us, God has the last say. God, we are told by the Apostle Paul, he hath appointed a day. This was not appointed by some world ruler, by the dictator out of uh, Russia or Nasser or somebody from this country. God has arranged this day, and here's what will happen. In the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Now who has God raised from the dead? We know that there is but one. That man, the man Christ Jesus. You remember the uh, words that were spoken at the birth of Jesus? The angel was sent unto Mary, and the words that he said unto her, Thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. If we recognize Jesus as the central figure in what we might call Christianity, true Christianity, we must recognize his position as king over the house of Jacob for what length of time? Forever. Has he ever been king? Pilate, you remember, asked him this question. Jesus says, To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world. But we know that he has never been king. Our next question naturally would be, will he ever yet be king? The third chapter of Acts perhaps gives us the best answer from the scriptures on that. Repent ye therefore, he is telling the people of this, uh, the days of the apostles, that your sins may be blotted out. This is Acts 3.19. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. The times of restitution are the times that we are looking for. When Christ will come again, the coming of Christ is spoken of in over 300 places in the Bible, the second coming of Christ. The words that were pinned above his head upon the cross also are oft neglected as far as their import. Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The people who were taking part in the act of crucifying him wanted Pilate to write that he said he was the king of the Jews, not that he was the king of the Jews. And of course Pilate says, what I have written, 
I have written. And those words are handed down to us today. We see them imprinted in Christian religions today, the letters I-N-R-I, on many of their uh, forms. Jesus, the word, the letter I, was not uh, used in the Greek, the letter J, instead they use I. So that therefore we see I-N-R-I, Jesus, Nazareth, Rex, King of the Jews. And those words have a very important meaning attached to them when we see that he is yet coming to be king over Israel. <clears throat> Let us look further now in the prophecies of old of what the Bible says concerning this uh, Jewish nation. In the 34th chapter of Ezekiel, We read verses 12 to 14. As a shepherd seek, seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the, in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in a good pasture and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold, and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. Also in the 23rd of Jeremiah, future things in store for this nation that we are interested in, Jeremiah 23, verse 3, And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries, whither I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, something they are not doing today. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. We could read on and on in that and other chapters. You'll skip over to the 31st chapter of uh, Jeremiah, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel, which is a fact we must recognize from history, as we see the Jews scattered in all nations, he that scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. That is God's promise. Back in Jeremiah 30, verse 11. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, whither I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Now we spoke that this kingdom of Israel existed in times past. Christ was not their king. They had kings ruling from time to time, starting with Saul and David and Solomon and the division of the kingdom unto the ten tribes and two tribes, and it existed for several hundred years on down until the time of Zedekiah. And most of these kings were wicked. They set up groves and idols continually and displeased God. The words that were spoken to Zedekiah are words of importance when we recognize 
the uh, plan of God. I think we find those in the 21st chapter of uh, Ezekiel, verse 25. If we can catch the setting in which God is wresting the kingdom out of this last king's hand, no more kings over Israel for the time being. Ezekiel 21:25. And thou, profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come, when iniquity shall have an end, thus saith the Lord God, Remove the diadem, a symbol of kingship, and take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low, and abase him that is high. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it him. Now can't we see that the person whose right it is is this man that we spoke of in the 17th chapter of Acts that God hath given assurance in that he has raised him from the dead. Note that he tells us exalt him that is, a low, that is low and abase him that is high in verse 26. This refers to the Gentile powers who as at this time about 600 years before Christ had not had any kingdoms of any note. The Jewish kingdom's kingdom had, had dominated uh, at all previous times, had defeated nations from time to time, and had held sway in the what we call political heavens. But at this time, Nebuchadnezzar was the first Gentile world ruler, came onto the scene and replaced Jewish domination. And it is true, as God hath said by his prophets here, it shall not be the same. No more Jewish dominion, but rather Gentile dominion. From Nebuchadnezzar, we trace it on down even unto this day and find that the Gentile powers have dominated the world's history. But this is not the end of all things. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he come, the one we are looking for, whose right it is, and I will give it him that is spoken of as the restored kingdom of David. He will build again the ruins of that tabernacle, of that throne, we read in the ninth chapter of Amos. Well, when is all of this to take place? That is a question that has been asked many times. Is the present condition of the earth indicative of what is to come? Well, if we are looking for something of progress, I think morally we can only say with all firmness and finality that the world is not developing or progressing to a state of a kingdom under Christ, not if it is to come about by an evolution of morals. The revelation of the Bible, the prophets have spoken to us. If we are acquainted with what they say from time to time, we see that it is through the development before our very eyes of the things taking place in this Middle East today that is to bring about the condition of peace that we speak of so often. We think that the Old Testament prophecies speak of this situation very clearly. We think that they speak of a coming war between the nation of Israel and its hostile neighbors, the Arab countries. There are seven uh, modern Arab powers. 
uh, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, uh, Jordan, uh, Kuwait, over on the Persian Gulf, and Iraq, constitute this 40 million population of Arab people. We will look at the what the scriptures have to say about this and see if you uh, can concur with me in what it says about the Israeli-Arab conflict. The Arabs, as we all know, are half-brothers to the Israelites, and they feel, and I think we see this in their actions as we read about them in our daily papers, they feel very strongly that this land belongs to them, that the Israeli people have no business in there trying to set up a government of their own. In the scriptures, the Arab powers or nations are identified by different names from time to time as Edom, Moab, Edomia, Mount Seir, descendants of Esau, and other names. In the book of Obadiah, this book has only one chapter, verse 9 and 10, we read this, And thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, we said that Esau, are the Arab people, are brothers, half-brothers to Israelites. And so it says here, Because of the violence that he has practiced against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. This leaves us no doubt as to the termination of the Arab as a group of people or as a nation. Also in that same vein, in the 35th chapter of Ezekiel, verse 5, verse 3 tells us who this is directed to, Mount Seir. In verse 5, Because thou hast had a perpetual hatred, and hast shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword in the time of their calamity, in the time that their iniquity had an end. And verse 9, I will make thee perpetual desolations, and thy city shall not return, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. This is merely one of the determinations of the Lord in the development of his program, which will ultimately see peace and prosperity in this land under the kingship of an immortal ruler, even Jesus the Christ. The Arab is destined, as we can see from these passages of scripture, to be a perpetual desolation. He will be utterly cut off, annihilated. If we review the events of World Wars I and II from a, from a historical standpoint, we might ask ourselves, what did they accomplish? As far as this country or any other country we may mention in the uh, whole earth, what did they gain? The prosperity that was afforded by those wars was small. The territory that they gained was negligible. But we saw in World War I the opening of the land in this very section of Israel over here 
the opening of this land, this strip of land, for immigration to the Jews. Previous to that time, they had no open immigration. Disraeli was a Jewish prime minister of England in the uh, 1910s, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And he had the uh, foresight to arrange the colonization of that uh, area of land and make it for Jewish uh, people. And in 1917, the Balfour Declaration was brought into effect by Lord Balfour of England uh, to open that land up to Jewish immigration. It was one of the, the great things as far as the Bible history is concerned that happened in that war. And the Turkish dominion, who had held sway over that country up until that time, was defeated and taken out of the way by Lord Alvey in December of 1917. As far as World War II, I think we would generally agree that the annexations of property by other nations was small. But another great thing happened to this country of Israel. Shortly after the war, 1948, Israel became a state. The Balfour Declaration ran out as far as its time limit, uh, allowing the free immigration. World War II, forced by the dreadful persecution of the Jew in Europe, forced Jewish people to flee into that area, and a state was built up and proclaimed on the 15th day of May in 1948, Israel became a nation or a state. The only other thing as far as Bible prophecy that happened during the Second World War that at least I can see that is of importance is the rise of Russia as a great military power, which we will discuss uh, a little bit later. But Israel began to rebuild in 1917, and today we see them as a nation, whether we would call them prosperous or not, is uh, perhaps a matter of opinion. But now we see the Jews and Arabs at each other's throats, one trying to hold dominion uh, over the other. And we can see from what we've read from the scriptures that the days of the Arabs are numbered. Utter destruction has been prophesied by God. This is not something that you might have an opinion or I might have an opinion that they're not going to last or that they're more powerful than another nation. But God has forecast that they will be destroyed. The Arabs made war on Israel in 1948 and 9 when Israel became a state. And the fighting that went on at that time was nothing short of miraculous. The way that the Israeli forces overcame the great odds that were against them. Ten men, literally, would capture thousands. And so we see that situation today. Two million Israeli people and 40 million Arabs. Why, the normal man would say if war broke out today, what could two million do with 40 million? But it has been said, and I feel we all believe it, that with God, one is a majority. 
And when he has predicted that Israel is to stay and that the Arab must go, I think that we must give some consideration to what he has said. But anyway, we see no peace there today. Look again at the 25th chapter of Ezekiel, verse 14. Is God going to run the Arab out? Or is he going to bring the, some other country in and, and do the fighting? Or, or just exactly what will happen? Ezekiel 25, 14. And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom, this is another name for the Arabs, by the hand of my people Israel. And they shall do in Edom according to mine anger and according to my fury, and they shall know my vengeance, saith the Lord. It is by the hand of Israel that this will be accomplished. Well, does this complete God's plan with uh, Israel and with the world as a whole? Is this what we're looking for? By no means. This is merely a skirmish, we might say, compared to what is to come. Christ is to be king. We recognize that. The prophet Zechariah tells us, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. This is not to be a mortal-dominated kingdom. In the prophecy uh, of Daniel, a verse that carries so much in it, Daniel 2.44, we spoke a moment ago of the Gentile kings holding sway since Zedekiah's time up until this present time. Those are spoken of as Gentile kings. In the 44th verse of the second chapter, it says, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven, this is God's doing, set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. All other kingdoms up to day, we've seen them rise and fall. We've seen great kingdoms from time past. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was a tremendous kingdom. The Medo-Persian under Alexander the Great, the Grecian that is, the... Uh, Roman Empire, other great rulers from time to time, they were all destroyed. They were considered invincible. But this kingdom that is prophesied by God will never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. Why is that? Today, a ruler rules 30, 40, 50 years, he dies, his son takes over. In a kingdom where there are immortal beings, heredity is not a factor. Its constituents being immortal, it will continue forever. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. This is the permanent institution of God. It shall stand forever. We pointed out earlier that the time for this would be at God's own choosing. He appointed the day. Let's trace from the uh, scriptures as accurately as we can and see uh, what we can find here. In the 24th chapter of Matthew, verse 31, we find that he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This, is, this speaks of, the, of Christ's return. Also in the... Uh, fourth chapter of 1st Thessalonians he speaks of his angels gathering together his elect or his saints 
those who have made a covenant with God by sacrifice for the purpose of the general resurrection and judgment. That is Christ's first work. He does not come and um, is immediately made king over the whole habitable, but rather he comes and selects his people, as can be determined by this verse and others. The work of selecting God's people follows after a type, and that type would be the type of Noah, for one. We note that when Noah and his family were saved, they were representative of the saved ones of the antediluvian age. And they were taken out of the arena of destruction before God brought this destruction, which at that time was a flood of water. So the saved ones were called out to be placed in a safe position, and God wrought destruction upon that antediluvian world. Abraham and Lot were a similar type. They were called out of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then God rained fire and brimstone on that city to destroy those wicked people. And in the 26th chapter of Isaiah, we read language that is uh, somewhat similar in thought to this idea. Verse 19 will definitely tell us what subject we are talking about, that being the resurrection. Isaiah 26:20. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. This verse seems to indicate that at the scene of judgment, uh, that, excuse me, that before any work of destruction takes place, the scene of judgment uh, is first represented as uh, a historical fact. That takes place, these destructions that we will mention later follow. The judgment scene is, of course, for a purpose, that purpose being to collect together the saved ones, Christ's body, and invest that group with immortality. They are the bride of Christ. They are associated with him from that point and forward in the various works that he may do in establishing himself as king. This is no miracle that happens overnight, but it is a orderly work that has been designated by the prophets of old who spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit and recorded God's plan. In the first chapter of Revelation, this, this body, our group of selected ones, is spoken of as one like unto the Son of Man. It's, it's uh, pictured as a figurative Son of Man. And in the tenth chapter of Revelation, the same group, our body of saved ones, is designated a mighty angel clothed with a cloud and having a rainbow upon his head, and hence has, been come, has become known as the rainbowed angel. The Bible being an earth book with all of the past, present, and future judgments of God enacted on the earth, it follows 
that this selection and formation of this one body or this mighty host or whatever term we may care to call it takes place on the earth. Now you might say, well, you're just assuming that, but this is not our sole reason for arriving at this conclusion. In the 33rd chapter of uh, Deuteronomy, where the children of Israel are receiving a blessing at the, uh, by Moses at that time, we see a time of futurity denoted or attached to this chapter. Verses 28 and 29 of Deuteronomy 33, it says, Israel then shall dwell in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine, also as heaven shall drop down dew. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord, the shield of thy help, and who is the sword of thy excellency? And thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. This is something that has not happened to Israel, even as yet. This is not the only thing in this chapter, however, that indicates futurity. In verses 8, 12, and 17, I'm not going to read them. If you care to make a note of them, you can. Blessings are indicated upon the persons representing the tribes of Levi, Benjamin, and Joseph, which are plainly unfulfilled to this day. Things that are going to happen to the tribe of Levi, its descendants, to the tribe of Benjamin, and to the tribe of Joseph, thus lending further assurance to us that the things contained in this chapter are future. And therefore, when we read in the second verse, the Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of his saints from his right hand, went a fiery law for them. We understand that to be the first step in the progress of Christ in going forth from the scene of judgment to redeem Israel, natural Israel, and to establish a kingdom here on this earth. The word for Lord in verse 2 there is Yahweh, a word that signifies I will be, or I will be manifest, or literally, I will be manifested in a glorious, immortal multitude. That, of course, has not taken place. So the Lord came from Sinai. We think that, we leave it for your consideration, we think that refers to this future time. Confirming this, we would read in the 68th Psalm, verse 17 and uh, 18 and 22. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Verse 22, the Lord said, I will bring again from Bashan, I will bring my people again from the depths of the sea. Notice the word again. 
As we remarked earlier, the history of Israel is true. They passed through the Red Sea as a means of redemption, bringing them out of bondage into a land of promise under the Savior Moses at that time. Here we read of, I will bring my people again, or a second time, from the depths of the sea. Also, we would like to leave for your consideration the third chapter of Habakkuk. That entire chapter uh, speaks relative to this uh, subject of the Lord Jesus coming forth from this area of Sinai. Incidentally, we pointed out that in this Sinai Peninsula, Mount Sinai that exists in that area is an elevated uh, area, I think, of around 7,200 feet. And different writers from time to time have described the topographical features of that land. Uh, not that it is entirely necessary, but that it seems very suitable and isolated for such an event as this uh, to take place. Looking at the third chapter of Habakkuk in verse 3, God came from Teman. The word translated God here is Eloah, literally adorable one, strong one, or holy one, or Messiah. Came from Teman and the holy one from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. We notice in the reading of these passages from Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Habakkuk that it speaks of the glory that is associated with him, thus uh, assuring us that it is not something that has passed, but it is that glory that is to be revealed in the future. Now, Teman means south. Mount Paran, of course, is in this, uh, the wilderness of Paran is over in this area. Uh, I'm not certain at the moment where Mount Paran is, but I think Teman and Mount Paran are in that general area. I wish I were more uh, certain uh, of their definite location, but Teman, I'm quite sure, is in the Sinaitic uh, Peninsula. One thing I think we notice as we follow terms in the scriptures is that titles change from 2,400 years ago or 3,000 years ago. Uh, Ethiopia today, as we see it on our uh, geographical maps, may not be what Ethiopia was in bounds and limits uh, so many years ago. But if this time that is spoken of in this third chapter of Habakkuk uh, was past, then we would see, if it were true, God's glory covering the heavens today, and the earth would be filled with his praise, which is not the case, so we feel that it speaks of what we are telling is to be the future manifestation uh, of Christ in his glory. So the peninsula of Sinai is indicated in the scriptures to be this region where Christ will first appear in the program of God, which will lead to the establishment of this glorious kingdom, peace on earth, and goodwill toward men. He comes with ten thousand of his saints, we are told, and the Apostle Paul calls them messengers of his power, or angels of his power. All power 
is given to the Lord Jesus. All authority, all ability to do whatever is necessary to carry out this program of God. This multitude with him is described in the scriptures as having been redeemed out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and made kings and priests to reign with him on the earth. The time that is at our disposal today will not permit us to go into great detail. I wish that uh, it would. But from the prophets, particularly in Isaiah, I'd like to make a couple of references to that before I close here. It indicates that the Lord Jesus with this multitude will come from this area of the lower Sinaitic Peninsula. While he has assembled there, the Arab-Israeli war will have reached its climax with the Arabs having been defeated and Israel in control of this entire Middle East. The country of Kuwait is right down here. It's even smaller than Israel, which is only the size of the state of New Jersey. This little country is the richest oil-producing country uh, in the world today. And it, you can see its size there. Compared with Israel, it's even smaller. Israel will be in control, prospectively, of this entire, and this Saudi Arabia goes further down than this map carries us. And we can imagine, just from our own uh, political guesses, of what reaction that would bring upon the Russian people who are seeking uh, domination of the world today. And it is our feeling, substantiated by the prophecies of the 37th and 38th of Ezekiel, that the Russian power, a Russo-Assyrian Gog, as they are referred to, will come down, as, as it says in that chapter, will come down upon the land of Israel, swarm all over it to take a spoil, that they are in possession of the rich oil reserves, of that they're in control of the world, we might say, if they should shut off their oil. The Lord Jesus, meanwhile, has assembled at Sinai. After the Israeli-Arab conflict, Russia pushes into this country and overflows it even unto Egypt, we are told. I have these references down here, but I find it necessary to pass on to give a, a complete resume. So Russia controls this area even on down into Egypt. That's into here. And we, we find that the Lord Jesus has assembled in this southern uh, Sinaitic Peninsula. And we find record here of him coming forth, I believe it's in the 51st of Isaiah, and going into Egypt. And I, I think if you will recall in the 68th Psalm I just read where it says, I will bring again from the depths of the sea. It is likely that the when the Russian uh, invasion takes place in that area, that the Israeli people will be pushed in various directions. There are quite a few Jewish people in Egypt today, I think. I, I read this even in this uh, Port Said up here at the head of the Suez Canal uh, at this last invasion down there by the French and British that there were 5,000 Jews that, that were wanting to get transportation out to the Holy Land. 
And there's quite a few Jews in there now and will be perhaps through uh, the progress that's brought on by that uh, Russian invasion. So the root of Christ we may safely and accurately trace from Sinai into this Egyptian area to liberate his people as it is spoken of in the scripture. His destination will be Jerusalem, which is to be the capital of the world. But before he goes there, we read in the 63rd of Isaiah, if you would care to refer to that, of the area of Basra, which is a few miles south of the Dead Sea, in which it spoke, uh, the prophet speaks, Who is this that comes from Basra, with dyed, uh, that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? And it is there, at Basra, we feel that the Lord Jesus with his immortalized group, the rainbowed angel that is spoken of in the tenth of Revelation, will meet and conquer with no trouble at all considering their immortal condition, the host of Russia in which it is spoken of that will take the people of Israel seven months uh, to clean up and bury the uh, killed invaders. And that from Basra, the Lord Jesus, of course, his next step will be Jerusalem, since that is the uh, place of, of uh, kingship, and that as he comes into Jerusalem, he will establish a kingdom there. The world, of course, is not looking for that kingdom. It's far, they're trusting in their own powers, their reserves of atom bombs, their reserves of various military might. And Christ, in proclaiming himself king, will not receive an overwhelming response at once. And it is after that time, I think, that we can look for what is popularly known and scripturally known as Armageddon. Now, Armageddon, or the Valley of Megiddo, is up in the northern part, uh, 50 miles north of Jerusalem. And we feel that that conflict will take place after the Russian hosts have been uh, dealt with. The first invasion which we speak of that being Russia is an invasion of spoil they're coming down to secure wealth and power whereas the second conflict is not that at all but it is rather a religious uh, crusade in which the rest of the world grouped under a religious uh, dominion attempts to overthrow this newly established king at Jerusalem and in the 17th chapter of Revelation, verse 13, we read that he makes war against the Lamb and that the Lamb overcomes. The Lamb is enthroned at Zion at that time and that he overcomes these ten kings and their uh, head that is leading them at that time. For he, Christ, is Lord of lords and King of kings. So the result of this second conflict will be the consolidation of the throne of Christ where he will be king over all the earth not just a small minute area but God's plan will be coming at that time to a head as he said in the uh, 14th chapter of Numbers as surely as I live and if we believe that God is or that he exists or that he lives the earth shall be full of my glory as surely as the waters cover the sea God's glory does not cover the earth today in any manner shape or form but if we believe what the prophets of old have said about him, surely we see that these things are coming to pass.